Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Tom Baldwin and this is another fresh, brand new episode. Uh, Tom has just written a book, you may have heard of it, Keir Starmer, The Biography. And it is a cracking read and we talk about that and I've put a link to it, should you want to buy it, that you can just click on and buy. Obviously, I am a fan of political biographies. <laughs> I have bookcases and shelves heaving with political biographies and this is a fantastic addition to those to those shelves it's a cracking read and tom himself has had a fascinating career as a first year as a political journalist for the times then working for ed miliband as a political advisor then advising the people's vote campaign um before writing this biography of keir starmer the book itself has an interesting story this was meant to be keir starmer's autobiography the one that he announced a while ago uh, but he effectively kiboshed it and Tom picked up uh, the, the project, really, after meeting Keir Starmer in the pub and decided to write a biography instead, instead of it being Keir Starmer's work. So um, the, 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 the genesis of the book is interesting, but also Tom finding out about Keir Starmer and what, what is uh, fantastic about the book is you learn a lot of stuff that even those of us who are politically obsessed that devour these sorts of things ahead of interviewing people like Keir Starmer and, and just take all this stuff in all the time you think you've heard everything you, there is to hear about a person well we've barely scratched the surface um, so there is a lot of new stuff in there and it just gives Tom a unique perspective on uh, the leader of the Labour Party and what he's like and his life story and how it shaped him uh, is brilliant. So uh, I will stop waffling on and uh, I will, well, let's enjoy a brilliant chat with Tom Baldwin. Tom, your uh, new book about Keir Starmer has certainly um, caused a fuss. Is it a fuss, do you think, that he will welcome? Um, look, it's a risk. And political leaders in this position, in an election year, don't usually allow this degree of access to your friends, your family, your closest advisors, your shadow ministers, yourself, particularly political leaders like Keir Starmer, who have a reputation for caution. I think the reason why he's done it is he knows that people are still asking questions of him. They want to know who he is, where he comes from, what he's going to do. And it's not a short answer. You can't do it in three-word three, three word slogans. We've seen where three-word slogans got us in the past, and they're not working. So it takes a book. It's quite a long book, but I think people who read it, or I hope people do, will discover a different Keir Starmer to the rather two-dimensional caricature that he's been presented as before. So this came out, this was originally meant to be his autobiography. This was the one that he announced, and then he effectively hands it over to you. So how did that come about? I was asked to help him write this autobiography because the truth is political leaders, one of the reasons why they don't do it, they don't have very much time. And when they do try and write books, they're not always very good. Um, so I was asked to help him put it together, as they say. It became very swiftly apparent to me he didn't feel comfortable with the whole idea. He didn't. Look, he's not one of those politicians who like talking about himself. He didn't go into politics because he always had a fantasy about addressing huge crowds. He's just not like that. And he felt awkward and embarrassed about it. So he basically killed the book off and I thought that was probably the right thing to do. So we then went to the pub as you do with Keir Starmer sometimes. And I persuaded him that his story still needed to be told, but it couldn't be one of those authorized biographies where all his aides pass every sentence because it would be shit. So I said, you know, let me have a degree of independence I'll talk to all the people, but you don't get control over it because it won't work for you. And 
you know, I'm not pretending I'm not, you know, I'm some sort of neutral arbiter. I'm a Labour Party person. When I was a journalist, I was a Labour Party leaning journalist. But I do think I've written a fair book and I've talked to his critics. And in some places I've accepted they've got a point. Did he have any handwritten manuscripts that then he, he dumps on your lap? No, I haven't really got that far. I mean, there have been some interviews, bits and pa- bits and pieces, some memos. But I kind of thought if you had that stuff, he still had control over, to be honest. Because if you're writing an autobiography, that's you. But anything subsequent to that, that I had control over that. And I think it's sort of important that I'm honest about where it came from and which bits he had control over and which bits he didn't really. And how well did you know him before you started doing this? Not very well. I'd met him a few times covertly when I was trying to persuade him to back the People's Vote campaign for a second referendum in Europe, um, which, you know, the world would be a better place if we'd won, but we lost. Um, and then after the 2019 election, not untypically, Keir Starmer, who had by then emerged finally as a leader of the campaign for a new referendum, is off. I mean, you know, people like me were left on Romaniac Island with, you know, Emily Thornberry and, uh, you know, the likes. And here was off. Now that issue settled and we didn't speak again for another couple of years. Um, but I've got to know him, I think, better. I think quite well over the course of writing this book. I've interviewed him probably a couple of dozen times. I've spoken to him more, spoken to his family. I've been inside his house, which not many people have. Um, so... It's a full of pictures you're going to get before the election. It's a fantastic book. I've read about a third of it, so I haven't read the full thing. So as you'll appreciate, with it being chronological, we're still dealing really with his youth. And that, reading about that is very difficult. It's actually quite a sad story, the start of his life. I mean, obviously that story needs to be told. But do you think, from a reader's perspective, people might feel uncomfortable effectively feeling sorry for a political leader? I don't think he's asking people to feel sorry for him. And I don't think he even really wanted to talk about it very much. I've had to chisel quite a lot of this out of him. He is quite a private person. Um, I think, what I hope anyway, is that people will understand him better from this. Because there's lots of layers to this. He, you know, partly it's a story about class in the 1970s and, you know, his dad was a very skilled man, a toolmaker, as everybody now knows. But growing up in a village in Surrey, no one knows that a toolmaker is a very skilled person. It's just someone who works in a factory. Um, partly it's a desire for someone called Keir in Surrey, named after the Labour Party's first leader, to seem normal and play football and not to stand out. But part of the fact is he didn't have a... It, home life wasn't normal his mum was very very ill you know there were several times she went to hospital and he watched the golf and he didn't know whether she's going to come back whether she's going to live and his mum was life was filled with pain and there wasn't a lot of room to grow up expressing your feelings as people do now he wasn't allowed to emote and part of it's this real big drive in him to get on and get out there's a story of aspiration and then there's a little bit, it's a story of slight guilt because he was the one who went to university and his brother and his two sisters didn't. And they've been kind of left behind a bit as in quite precarious lives and jobs. And that's a constant reminder to him of what the real life, what, what the real world is like, I think. Anyone who's spent even a small amount of time with him will notice that he has a real presence and what i mean by that is as, as well as actually being charismatic he also clearly has a lot of empathy and that really comes across and it comes across in his speeches and in his interviews this is someone who really appreciates how difficult life can be how does he do you think get the balance right between clearly understanding how difficult life is but also for for people who perhaps aren't in a difficult circumstance or, or perhaps maybe let's be honest aren't that bothered how does he also be a leader for people like that how does he also show that he has a lightness of touch and and he he's an op- he has he talks about how his backstory can't be his front story what he means by that is he's not saying vote for me because my dad was a toolmaker my mum was a nurse or i grew up in pebble dash semi he's saying vote for me because i do kind of have a sense of what it's like I know what it's like to struggle to pay bills. Now, I don't think that's 
something which only the precariat know now. I think quite a lot of people in this country are really struggling or finding things tighter. I mean, people with homes are finding it harder to pay their mortgages. People, middle-class people, can't get a GP doctor's appointment. They're worried about what happens to their kids' schools. So I, I, I think a sort of empathy about ordinary people's lives, whatever class they're from, is important. But there's another side to him, which I think is also important, in that he is really, really ruthless. And I, sometimes it takes my breath away, because I've sort of got to know this rather decent bloke who's always asking in a gen, genuine way about how my son's getting on at football. or And he's interested in people in a way quite a lot of politicians I've met really aren't. They don't like people. He likes people. And he can be incredibly decent. I'll tell you one story. So when my old boss, Ed Miliband, I used to work for Miliband when he was leader, he stood in for Keir at short notice to do PMQs because Keir had got uh, COVID. And Ed did brilliantly. And all the sketch writers said, oh, there's the passion. Why can't we see that from boring old Keir Starmer more often and so on? Never said that about Ed when he was leader, of course, but that's the way politics works. And sometimes when your understudy does well, your nose is a bit out of joint. And he couldn't have been nicer. He's bombarding Ed with messages saying, brilliant. He knew how cathartic it had been for him. He sent Ed's wife a message saying, when he walks in through the door, tell him he's done a great job. And Ed was sort of pretty chuffed by that. But that's a sign of unpolitical, decent person. Three weeks later, Keir sacks him as shadow business secretary. <laughs> now, so I say to you, how can you balance that decency with that ruthlessness and he says it's just in separate places. Yeah. You know, I'm decent to my friends and people I know, but I have to be ruthless. Otherwise, it's going to be indecent to all the people in this country who need a Labour government. And that kind of cold eye separation does mark him out a bit. I don't, I, I've not come across a more ruthless Labour leader. I've not come across a more ruthless politician. One doesn't contradict the other, does it? Ed Miliband could have done a good job at PMQs and also not been suitable to be Shadow Business Secretary. The, the two are entirely possible. And maybe lots of people listening to this podcast may have agreed with uh, Keir Starmer's conclusion to both. Yes, but the way politics usually works is you've got your mates and you've got your factions and you know they're that side and we're that side. He said to me at one point, I don't know who in my Shadow Cabinet were Blairites and who are Brownites. And I don't care. He really isn't interested in these ites and isms. He's not really interested in some big rigid ideology. And I think this is something people get wrong about him. They were constantly trying to sort of frame him by some policy promise three or four years ago, or try and describe some big ideological apparatus which defines him. And he's not like that. He's got values but he pursues them pragmatically. And it's like, I, just, I, I keep describing it as, it's like our road system, which winds around the hills or common law, which bends itself into the folds of national life. And I think it's very English. It's how most people actually are. Most people change their mind about things quite a lot when the facts change. Or sometimes when they grow up, they change their minds about things. Only in politics are you meant to be bound to something you said on Radio 4 at, 11.30 at night once, four years ago, before COVID, before Ukraine, before Liz Trust blew up the entire economy. And that's meant to be somehow tattooed to you and you can never lose that tattoo. I mean, it's a ridiculous way to conduct discourse in public life and we've all got to grow up. Well, that's very true. But also there's the other element of it, isn't it? Which is where the public just want to understand what he is. So they might say, oh, we get a sense that he's Labour and he's not Jeremy Corbyn, but, um, you know, we vote for Labour when it's in a particular place and we just want to know that he's in that place. He is Labour, but he's not, he didn't grow up as a politician. He spent most of his life as a lawyer, where you win your arguments on the basis of facts and evidence. You never win an argument in court on the basis of, my dad was a toolmaker. Well, the judges go, what? So, you know, he doesn't behave like a politician. He's not a typical politician. And one of the weirdnesses, I think, about politics at the moment is everyone says they hate politicians. And then when it gets to Keir Starmer, they go, why can't he be more like a politician? <laughs> but he's doing quite well. He's got a 20-point lead in the polls. Yeah, but he won't win unless, he, unless he's more like a politician. Well, she's been doing better than all those other politicians. 
all those supposedly more charismatic people who have self-immolated over the last few years, he's still there, plodding away, reassuring, following his values, and, you know, people seem to quite like it. I often wonder, looking back, you know, Tony Blair was called Bambi, and then he was, you know, this was a guy who would say anything to get elected, and then he was a man who would never change his mind. You know, over the arc of your career, you get framed in different ways, and perhaps you do change as a, as a politician, but... Do you think this time next year people will be looking back saying, oh, it was obvious Starmer was going to win. Oh, my God, it was, you know, he was 20 points ahead. It was never in doubt. Um, doubtless. And some of those people will be the people who said in 2020 that there was no way he could possibly win. Some of those people who wrote him off in 2021 who said he's a transitionary leader. And those same people are saying he can't change the country now. Now, again, logically, it's possible that you'd be wrong about things again and again and again, and you're going to be right about something. I mean, Brexit put supporters got it right once, in terms of where the public opinion was, and ever since they think they've got a sort of, you know, finger on the pulse of the electorate. Um, so, that, you, know, a, you know, a stuck clock appears right twice a, twice a day. Um, I think people should show a bit more humility, and journalists should show a bit more humility. It may be that if Labour does win the election and as Labour government, it all goes to, you know, we go to hell out of the handcart and it's all crisis and disaster. But given that they predicted that Keir Starmer didn't have a chance against beating the charismatic Boris Johnson, who was so brilliant and everyone loved him, given that people predicted he would never get his party reforms through, given that people predicted that Richie Sunak would contest his territory and remove, you know, being competent and decent wasn't enough and he's still 20 points the lead in opinion polls they should perhaps not make the mistake of so many people before of underestimating him and maybe he will change the country i certainly think that when people stand back and recognize that politics is a choice between better and worse he does represent something better and that's perhaps not an objective view but it's what i believe and do you think he will become Prime Minister? I think there are reasons to be very, very cautious about the poll lead. Politics is volatile. So in 1997, when Tony Blair won that big landslide, 70% of people always voted the same way. So to get a switcher was a big achievement. Now only 40% of people vote the same way. So that's why Labour have gone from 20 points behind to 20 points ahead. And it can go back it can evaporate. There are lots of things that can go wrong. That said, I look at the Conservative Party at the moment, who are busy sort of stabbing themselves in the eye with a fork over and over again. And I'm not seeing that as a strategy which is likely to win many votes back. I think people just see a party stabbing itself in the eye with a fork. He seems to have really grown as a leader already, Keir Starmer. You just think of that last Labour Party conference and the branding around it, the way the conference hall looked, the way it looked on TV, the way that he handled himself. He is starting to feel like someone who's already... You know, if you were visiting from abroad and you turned on the telly, you'd think that guy was the Prime Minister. Do you think that he has a sense of that? I think he's all, he, one of the advantages he's had over previous leaders is that you've always been able to imagine him being Prime Minister. He has a solidity about him. And that's more than just act. There is a sense of grown-up. I think he's also learned. And I think one of the characteristics which I identify most in the book is, is he knows that he's not perfect. He, he knows he makes mistakes. And he's going to make more mistakes. But how he responds to a mistake or how he responds to the identification of a deficiency in his political performance is interesting because rather than denying it or doubling down behind a mistake, he always wants to learn from it. He always wants to say, how do we prevent that happening again? What do I need to do to change it? And I think that's quite an attractive quality. It goes back to this thing about changing your mind rather than just being stuck in one place because you've said it once and you have to, you know, it's, it's about bending, not flip-flopping, but bending with where the reality of life and politics and economics lie. And he, I think he's, he's become quite impressive at that. I and mean, that party conference, when you know, the, the 
bloke attacked him with a glitter bomb. Uh, it turns out he's actually from the same village in Surrey where Keir grew up, rather coincidentally. Um, there's a story I'll tell you about that. He was after, you know, he stood, he stood up to it very well, didn't clock the bloke, he didn't flinch, so it's interesting. But then he notices that there's glitter in the glass of water on his rostrum. And he's under bright lights, it's hot up there. And he doesn't know whether to drink from the glass of water. And this is so starmerish. I watched the tape for 26 minutes in pauses for applause. Rather than milking it, rather than being excited about connecting the crowd, you see him staring at these two glasses of water, wondering which one has the least glitter in it, <laughs> assessing the risk, thinking, what happens if my mouth goes dry? What happens actually I do ingest the glitter? Is that going to do something terrible to me? And after 26 minutes, he makes the decision and drinks. And it's, it's very unusual, right? It's like most politicians are going, well, hey, I've got to study ovation and yeah, the electricity. And he's going, which glass of water should I drink from? I quite like it, though. Yeah, I quite I like someone taking a bit of time over a decision, being able to separate themselves from the moment. But you must have a bit of an ego. You know, you don't put yourself forward to be a member of parliament in the first place, let alone a political party, and then leader of the country without having some sort of ego. So what's your assessment of the nature of his ego? That's a good question. Look, anyone in politics, anyone who wants to be prime minister must be guilty of some pretty weird form of vanity, I think. I mean, <laughs> why would you want to do it? And one of his old friends, Colin Peacock, he goes to the pub with, doesn't understand why he would do this. He's always saying, whenever think something goes wrong, he goes, great, you can quit now. He says, when your career ends at failure, I'll be there saying, told you so, told you so, told you so. So why does he do it? I think part of it is he's really competitive. And again, people don't see that. Talk to anyone who plays football with him. And he's hard. He's a really hard bastard on football pitch. And he's a hard bastard in politics. And he wants to excel and he wants to win. Part of it is duty. And that's old-fashioned and sort of thing politicians say. But he's said it enough times for me to believe him. And the way he says it, he doesn't get much pleasure out of being leader of the opposition. He really doesn't like swanning around and waving to the cameras. He, th he talks about his mother. He talks about how she was in pain and she put one foot in front of another and it was agony. And I think he regards a lot of what he does in politics as the same. He, this is all pretty painful. He's doing things he doesn't particularly like, whether it's breaking a policy promise or having to talk about his parents or talk about his brother. It's the sort of thing you have to do for politics. It's all in the same category, but it's a means to an end because he really does want to get into government to do something, not be somebody. Do you think, you know, he, he likes football, he likes a pint, as you say, it's hard. Um you know, in the book, people who say they play football against the it'd be quite lippy, can be relentless with people on his own team and with others. Do you think, in a way, this is someone who actually naturally is is quite blokey, and if anything, is trying to tone that down a bit? His friend Mark Adams, who's at school with him, played football with him over the years, says that most politicians pretend to like football in order to appear more normal. If Keir's going to appear normally, he probably has to tone the football side down because it's quite obsessive. And, you know, he, he if, you, if you watch his interviews, he's always trying to reach for a political uh, metaphor, uh, to express politics for a football metaphor. And at one point he said to me that getting rid of Rebecca Long-Bailey from the Shadow Cabinet was a bit like what Arteta did when he got rid of Aubameyang. <laughs> you have to be quite deep in your knowledge of Arsenal's recent yeah. fortunes, to completely understand that. and It's quite flattering to Rebecca yeah, Long-Bailey, though. <laughs> well, yeah, her latest form hasn't been great. <laughs> yeah. she's, on, she's on a bit of a gold drought, I'd say. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You mentioned, obviously, that you worked for the People's Vote campaign, and I remember meeting you at the time, and that felt, um, felt like a big campaign. A lot of people marched through London um, thanks to you know, the skill you and the other people at the heart of that campaign had at... Um, organizing and, and corralling people in, in that period and it felt like there was a different type of movement maybe brewing obviously Keir Starmer as you say since the referendum has just said well that's the result it's over we, we get on with it um as, as someone who was so central to the people's vote campaign does that does that upset you I would like him to go further and faster um I think it's in Britain's economic interest but he yeah he he will he would choice the choice at the election for people like me, people like you probably, is between better and worse. And the Conservative Party cannot do basic things with Europe, which are obviously in our national economic interest, obvious in, in the interest of our young people or our scientists or whatever ones have dealings with our closest partners, because their party is batshit crazy. They're trapped in the badlands, in the swamp of people who really have very little relationship with the rest of the country or reality, and they are prisoners of it. So what Keir Starmer, I believe, will do is he will take incremental steps towards closer alignment when it's in Britain's national interest. There's lots of low-hanging fruit, and he will pick it. Now, where we end up in 5, 10, 15, 20 years... I don't know. I think any form of incrementalism ends up banging up against a cliff face. And at some point, some bigger decisions will need to be made. I mean, when he was shadow Brexit secretary, he was talking a lot about a customs union, a bespoke thing. Um, he went quite down, far down the road talking to Barnier, the EU negotiator, about, about that. I don't think that's where he is now. I think he's talking about a lot of bilateral deals. And they're there to be done. So can he make relations with Europe better? Yes. Will he go the whole hog? Will he please people like you, me, Alistair Campbell? No, there'll be a lot of us wishing he was more bold. In a way, though, isn't he right that whilst um, some of us still mourn our departure from the European Union, most people think, well, we lost or we won, and in a way we all have to get over it. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I think he's probably right that there's not a great appetite for all politics to be consumed by a Brexit question. Yeah, I think that's where, yeah, he, does, he there's a lot to be done in a first term of a Labour government. Does he want to open another enormous debate about Brexit? I think that's just, I think that'd be bad politics. I think it'd be quite bad for the country, to tell the truth. Yeah, so can he go a bit further? Can he go a bit faster? Yes. Should people be putting pressure on him from the pro-European side? Yes, I think they should. Um, but you know, if there, there, there are other opportunities and other things which may be more important right now, given the challenges we face. And I think you'll want to get on with them rather than have a big debate about Brexit. What are your instincts? You know, if you had to decide here and now, say, look, if there's an election tomorrow, what sort of majority do you think Labour would get? Um, I've always been on the pessimistic side. Um, do you remember the great cricket commentator? You're, you're too young to remember. The great cricket commentator, John Arlott, when he's commentating from Old Trafford, would say, when you can't see the Pennines, that means it's raining. When you can see the Pennines, it means it's about to rain. And it's always best to be pessimistic because you don't get so disappointed. And we keep losing. I hope and pray that Labour doesn't lose the next election because I think it's a really important election. I think the poll lead will probably come down. 
I think people need not to panic when that happens. It may be quite a small majority, if any majority at all. I do think Keir Starmer is pretty likely to be the next prime minister, even if it's a minority government, even if it's a small majority. Uh, and that will limit what he can do. A bigger majority obviously makes it much easier. He doesn't want to have to come, you know, govern with the campaign group or have to make deals with other parties. Um, I don't think there are deals in the offing, by the way. Um, I think he, if he wants to get this decade of national renewal he's talking about and take the kind of radical pragmatic steps that I think he will take, he needs a bigger majority. I'm not sure whether he'll get one. How do you think he's going to handle the election campaign? I mean, obviously, these by-elections give you a, a, a slight window into the hostility and the tone and just the pure chaos of what the next election is going to be like. Do you think he is um, prepared for what's about to hit him? I don't think anyone can be prepared. And Labour leaders, any Labour leader, will have everything thrown at them. That's always the case. And Labour Party will always be held to a higher standard. You know, Labour does one set of attack ads against Rishi Sunak. I didn't like them. I thought Why they were not? Wrong. I didn't think they were accurate. I didn't think they were fact-based. I didn't think they were very Keir Starmer. And I think the reason why the staff did it is they needed to show they had the capability. It's like a sort of nuclear weapons programme. We need to show that we're, we're attack ad capable. I did compare it in the book to like the nuclear, head of the nuclear weapons programme whose testing programmes wiped out half the farmland in his own country uh, to show that he's capable. Um, but uh, I do think there's some double standards. You know, Labour, you know, the Tories do all this stuff all the time and everyone goes, oh, that's proper grown-up politics, aren't they great? Labour does it once and people run around like hysterics saying that this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. So I think it was people that, on know, Labour's own side, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I, I've never had a problem with kind of punchy attack ads. Uh, regardless of the tone of the leader, I think you have to highlight your opponent's record and, and doing it in a way that's provocative, you know, obviously within reason. And, and, and the opponents, those, um, uh, you know, ads probably thought that they weren't within reason. But really, the people who seemed most offended were, were, were Labour people rather than anyone else. Yeah, I look. I think Labour always thinks it's on higher moral ground and, and needs to defend that high moral ground. I mean, it's interesting, those attack ads, because the thinking behind it was every electoral cycle, local election cycle, the Tories would say something outrageous you know, on culture war stuff about, you know, Pakistani grooming gangs or trans or something like this, simply to get a reaction from Labour. And then we would walk into that trap. That's what they say. We would always, there's an elephant trap and we go, oh, let's look inside and see if there's an elephant there. And then the whole campaign would be about that culture war issue. And this was an attempt to show that Labour could do it itself. It could get everyone talking about Rishi Sunak and the conservative record on law and order. And they got front pages in the Daily Mail. And for them, that was a success. I didn't like it. Uh, maybe it's necessary, maybe that's how politics has changed, but I'm never going to like that sort of politics. And does he still stand by them? He was away when they were done and he didn't know the detail of them. But I quite liked him not throwing his team under the bus. You know, he he doesn't want, you know, when people start briefing against his staff, he'll generally defend them. Um, and he stood by them. Uh, I don't think he would like to see them done in exactly the same way again. But we'll see. You mentioned a couple of times William. it worked you for Ed Miliband. Um, how difficult was that? It was a hostile environment. And Ed was... Look, you know, we're coming on after 13 years of Labour government... And Ed was running as a change candidate. And the Tories had only been in power for a few years. It was it was a very, very tough place. And I think Ed's brilliant. I think he 
is someone in politics for the right reasons. I love him and I think he's contributed a huge amount to this shadow cabinet too. He's a different politician to Keir Starmer. They've got different qualities. And um, I think probably in these circumstances, in these times of insecurity, Keir Starmer probably has a better chance of being a reassuring figure to the voters we need to win than Ed was. I think Ed would probably admit that too. Some people might say, well, look, this guy lost in 2015, started Labour on a course towards Corbynism. He basically opened the trapdoor for all this stuff to happen and, and doesn't seem that contrite about it. Is he really someone who should be prominent going into the next election? Or you could say that Ed Miliband was a central figure in the success of the new Labour years under Gordon Brown. Or you could say that Ed Miliband is someone who's always been interested in ideas at a time when there aren't lots of ideas. There's lots of ways you can frame him. And he's not like the first party leader who's lost an election, gone on and served the government very well. I mean, William Hague, yeah, I think his reputation is a lot higher after those years as foreign secretary than it was when he stopped being Tory leader. So people do get second chances in politics. I know the job that Ed Miliband wants in any Labour government. It's climate change secretary. He's, you know, I think there's some disappointment at the decision not to have the 28 billion. Um, but he also knows that what Labour are offering is significantly better than uh, what the Conservatives would do, what they have done. He knows that Kirsten has got a commitment to a green economy. And he knows that change can be achieved and he wants to be part of it. And do you think, as with William Hague, that the public might end up in a slightly different place with him? That obviously Hague was ridiculed for the way that he sounded, for the way that he looked. He was seen as a total joke, uh, particularly compared to Tony Blair. And then in the end, people were like, oh my God, this guy's a comedy genius. Get him on Have I Got News For You and we can't get him. And, and, and not only that, he's a statesman. He's one of the great thinkers of the right. Do you think that's the sort of place that Ed Miliband could, could end up, at, you know, not just loved by a, a, a caucus in his party, but actually by the country? Um, I think Ed's always got a radical edge and when you get loved by the whole country it's generally because you don't have that radical edge anymore. You know, when Tony Benn became a sort of much loved father figure and everyone's saying isn't it Miles what an old parliamentarian I thought that's when he lost his capacity to shock and have any power. Um, I don't think Ed will want that to happen to him. He's not William Hague. William Hague sort of cleaved towards the establishment and the conventional. And I think that transition from William Hague was actually quite a right-wing leader of the Conservative Party when I was covering politics for the Times, to now one of the more sensible, moderate people, is also a mark of how far the Conservative Party has moved in recent years. And when William Hague made the foreign land speech, and I don't want to wake up on a foreign land, uh, you're better at impersonations <laughs> than me. I, you know, people were shocked. But William Hague didn't want to leave Europe. He didn't want to get the hardest possible Brexit deal we could possibly get. He didn't want to be hanging out with the crazies from Donald Trump and the like. It's like, you know, I mean, the whole of politics has shifted rightwards into some really weird right-wing stuff. And I don't think that's where the British people are. I think there really is a desire for the kind of politics that Keir Starmer represents, which recognises complexity. You know, he's quite a complex person. So are the problems that face this country. So are the people who live in this country. And so are the solutions we'll find. And in ambiguity and nuance, might get in the way of this kind of straight lines that people always want in politics, you know. But in those ambiguities and nuances, I think it's potential to find consensus. And that's, I mean, I, there is a way forward. It's just not a slogan. What about the crazies in the Labour Party? Because he has been, as we discussed at various points in this interview, absolutely ruthless, probably even more ruthless than Blair with his own party. Um, yeah. Partly because of the past that he inherited um, 
from well in, entirely because of the party that he inherited from Jeremy Corbyn. But those forces are still there, as we saw with his by-election uh, candidate in Rochdale. That element is still present in the Labour Party membership. It is still present in the Labour Parliamentary Party. It's not inconceivable that he wins an election, but that the Corbynite rump that's still in the Labour Party is then, uh, you know, they are backbenchers of a governing party and they can create all sorts of trouble for him. Is he prepared to be as ruthless in government with those people, do you think? I think so. I mean, I think that's why the majority matters. Um, and pretty certainly doesn't want to govern with the rump of the campaign group. It's why his staff and at party headquarters have been so rigorous, sometimes in ways which sort of defied sense of natural justice about selecting candidates and vetting candidates. It's why some serious questions were asked about that vetting process when Aziz got through to be the candidate in Rochdale. Um, I think the party has changed. I mean, it's not just people have been thrown out. A lot of people have left. A lot of other people have come in. I, I've seen figures which suggest that if there was another leadership election now, Keir Starmer would win by a bigger majority than the one he had in 2020. So he has changed the party. And you know, there are loud voices on Twitter and social media. But as you know better than anyone, that's not the real world. No, that's right. And, you know, these... The, the Labour Party has to have borders. You can't be an entity if you extend into infinity on one end. There's, you know, people would say there are no enemies on the left. Yes, there are. There are people I fundamentally disagree with on the Sons left. Of any, right, yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, there are people who are apologists for the Soviet Union, and I disagree, and I don't think they have any place in the Labour Party. There are people who are apologists for terrorism. I don't think they've got any place in the Labour Party. So the Labour Party, if, you, if you're going to be a defined organisation, you have to have borders on both sides. I mean, who knows if the full story will ever emerge, but obviously um, Parliament in the last couple of weeks has torn itself in various ways over, over Gaza and the wordings of amendments and then debates and motions and things. There's a suggestion that Keir Starmer uh, may have had a conversation with Lindsay Hoyle um, that that some people would want to say is, uh, you know, he influenced him or he may have even bullied him or maybe even intimidated him. How on the basis of what do they say that, though? Well, on what either, basis do they because they're politically that? motivated or, or, or because it might be true. It, 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 I mean, do, do you think it's true? Does Keir Starmer feel to you like a man who would intimidate uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons? No, I think he's someone who's quite rigorous about following the rules. Now, you know, leaders of political parties go and meet the Speaker. And it's a private meeting. Now, there is as much evidence that they, that Keir Starmer bullied Lindsay Hall in that meeting as that they had they did some karaoke, ate a curry, and then had a game of Twister, right? I mean, you could make it all up, but there is absolutely not a shred of evidence that anybody was bullying anybody. And from what I know of Keir Starmer, he doesn't do that sort of thing. He can point out that, you know, there are threats against... MPs and he's worried about that but the speaker's like it's grown up he can you know decide what to do on the basis of the conversations he has and it's just I think it's a sort of stupid story you know there's a that's one of the things people don't like about politics people don't actually understand what all these amendments are and to see people walking out and shouting at each other it's you know it, there's a nonsense about this whole thing I mean what the British Parliament decides on a motion about a ceasefire does not save a single life in Gaza, not one. We do not have any influence. The Labour Party in opposition has zero influence on what happens in Gaza or on a Netanyahu government, which Keir Starmer has said he profoundly dislikes and wants to lose. Um, so we kind of have to sort of step back. This is not like a decision to send troops into Iraq or bomb people ourselves. It's about expressing an opinion of a about what a government is doing in the Middle East in a region which we have very little influence. Now, as such, I think what Starmer set out to do was try and show that he would be a stable partner to allies. He wouldn't be trying to outflank them and 
posture and win some votes in this country by taking out a tougher line than Canada or you know, other countries in Europe or Joe Biden. And that's because he wants Britain to have influence in the world again so that it can do something about the Middle East peace process if he wins an election. Now, you know, did he make misspeak in the LBC interview? Yes, he did. Did he make a mistake? Yes. Should he have corrected it earlier? I think he really should have corrected it earlier. Um, did it show a lack of knowledge about the Middle East? Yes. But in each case, what he's done is he's gone out and learnt and tried to correct an error and find out where, where he should behave better, perform better. And where is it, you know, so he you know, he's had long conversations since with Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor at the White House. He's flown to Qatar to meet the Emir. He's spoken to the King of Jordan. He's had long conversations with the Israeli Labour Party. And I, I think, I, you know, when people say politicians have made this mistake and that's terrible, you can acknowledge that, but you can also look at how they respond to screwing up. And I think a capacity to learn, acknowledge you've done something suboptimal, to try and make sure it doesn't happen again or rectify deficiency in your knowledge is quite impressive and encouraging. You're someone who's been on, on both sides of the fence as a journalist and as an advisor to, to politicians. What advice would you give Keir Starmer going into the next election? That there will be a wobble and he's got to be ready for it. There's always a wobble. But there's going to be particularly going to be a wobble this year because the press are desperate to change the narrative. They're fed up with reporting about Keir Starmer's boring 20-point lead, and they'll want this. They'll want there to be a moment of crisis for Labour, and Labour should prepare for that, and they should war game it almost. Um, and I sort of sometimes worry that you know. I don't think there's a lot of complacency around in the shadow cabinet, but I think you know, it, it would be human nature for a sustained 20-point poll lead not to lead to some sort of complacency. And the flip side of complacency is always panic. So you just need to just steady as you go, level it out. And I think Keir's quite a good leader for that. He 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 know he's got his, he's got some shock absorbers. But I think Labour need to be ready for that. You've also got to remember that Tory party are going to throw you know, not just the kitchen sink, but the whole kitchen at him. Um, you know, this is a wounded beast, but it's the most successful political party in Western Europe. It's used to winning. It doesn't like losing. And it will try everything. It really will. And just finally, since the book has come out, so since the book was finished and since it's been published, has, has Keir given you any feedback on the final product? Uh, he's reading it. Uh, he said he said he's learned a few things about himself, uh, about how other people see him. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was quite an inter quite quite perceptive comment on his part. You know, so much of his life has just been driving forward, next step, next step, next step. And he hasn't always sat back and thought about quite a lot of these things. He's had to do it for this book. He's had to do it since he's become a politician. But he's, that separateness I described earlier, where he's looking at which glass of water to drink, even as people are giving him standing ovations. Sometimes when I've spoken to him, it feels almost like he's part of him is watching the conversation rather than taking part in it. He's always trying to work out what the next step is and where this is going. And sometimes you kind of need to just stop and look around. And I, I think, if, you know, he's only one reader, but if that particular reader gains some insight into himself, that'd be good. I really help also that other people, whether they're Labour, whether they're Tory, whether they're not voters, gain some insight into him because he is a very different person to the one he's been presented as by the media. And he's quite likely to be the next Prime Minister and we could all do with learning a bit more about him.
Well, it's a great book, Tom, and it's not just because of the of the uh, the raw materials, you know, the things that he's done in his life. It is because it is very, very well written. So, congratulations on a on a on a on a fantastic uh, piece of work, and of course, all the all the all the success that is coming your way as a result of it, and all the praise, which is all justified. Well, I, I'm I'm pleased people think it's a great book. Go out and buy it and read it. I, I really hope people do read it rather than just sort of rely on a few news stories because he's a complicated guy and it's worth knowing about and I'm really grateful for your comments and I love being on your show so thank you cheers Tom well there you go Tom Baldwin who you can really feel uh, feels like he knows Keir Starmer maybe better than Keir Starmer knows himself you know sort of obsessing over someone and and, and investigating them and, and talking to their friends and family about them must give you a, a you're sort of immersed in that person's life and in their history. It must be quite a surreal project, but uh, he really got across the things that are interesting about Keir Starmer. And I think they are the sorts of things that you can see are true. The things that he said really resonated with with the things you see about Keir Starmer. So uh, there is a link to the book that you can click on uh, and buy and enjoy um, Keir Starmer, the biography, which is out now. I'll be back next week with a brand new, fresh episode. Please leave a five-star written review. Tell your friends about it. Share this far and wide, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra! Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.